Hey everyone, this is Nick and here is your weekly news recap of what happened in the Linux and open source world. So in this episode of the podcast, we have a very concerning situation in France where it looks like just using encryption and secure communication apps or even Linux could lead you to being arrested. We have Windows 11 actually losing market share and we have some cool updates to Coreboot and some open source firmware courtesy of System76 plus a ton of distro releases. So, as always, all the links that I use to make this podcast are in the show notes. And as always, this show is user-supported for now. And if you want to keep it this way, without sponsors or ads, you can support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes as well. So, now let's get into it. So, to begin with, let's talk about a weird situation in France, which is the country where I live, uh, if you didn't know that by my stupid accent. So, in December 2020, seven people were arrested in France for being suspected of harmful activities, mainly terrorism. And their trial is being prepared, and the grounds on which they've been arrested is basically only that they care about privacy and that they don't want their data being collected which includes using Linux. The French intelligence agency, called the GGSI, for Direction Générale des Services et de l'Information, or something like that, uh, this agency pointed out that these people communicated with each other using encrypted apps, like Signal, for example, and that they encrypted their hard drives. They also used ProtonMail, Tor, a VPN, or Tails Linux, on top of using de-googled Android ROMs, like Slash E, Lineage, and the F-Droid store. And using all of this apparently makes them super suspicious. Like, what do they have to hide? Why are they only using encrypted solutions? And why can't we collect anything about them to see what they're doing? And so basically they were just extremely suspicious. And this seems to be the only known grounds on which these people have been arrested. Like, the prosecution has not shown any sort of other proof or information until now that could justify why they've been arrested, apart from they don't give away their data, it's suspicious. Now, they've been asked over and over again in multiple interrogations that what, what they did in terms of activity that necessitated such protection, such encryption, and if that was to hide illicit activities. And the answer was no, of course. Well, who answers yes to that? Even if you're a terrorist, you're not going to admit it. The instruction judge even seemed to think that this and using this encryption and this security and this privacy is bad. Because when they made their report, they used terms like they admitted to using Tails and Tor, and they categorized the various applications and tools that they used as allowing access to illicit websites, which is mind-blowing because you can also access illicit websites with Firefox or Google Chrome, and no one is getting arrested for that. And it also hasn't been proven in any capacity, or at least none that has been leaked or or unveiled, that these seven people did access illicit websites at all. Now, the prosecution also seems to assume that these people were hackers because they were skilled enough to turn on full disk encryption. I'm not kidding. That's the grounds on which they think they are technically skilled because they turned on full disk encryption on their devices, which... Of course, they have refused to decrypt because why would you say yes to that? And encrypting your device is a one-click operation on most Linux distributions that you could install. It's super easy on Windows and on on Mac as well. 
It's even the default in some distribution. It's not an indicator of skill or being a hacker. And they've also been judged suspicious for trying to teach their family how to use the same tools and protections. And the judge and authorities continue to demonstrate a complete lack of technical knowledge. Uh, they basically, when they explained what, what tools these people were using in their report, they mistook Tor for Tails. Uh, they, th they thought you needed public Wi-Fi to use Tor, that it only worked on public Wi-Fi. Or they thought Tails was an encryption tool when it's a Linux distribution. It's really weird. And it's made... Oh, it's been made into a whole deal because there's a big French um, non-profit called La Quadrature du Net, which has made a huge profile on this, and it's starting to turn into a huge scandal because it basically criminalizes... Well, the, the trial hasn't been done yet. It will be in October this year. But the grounds on which these people have been arrested basically mean that it's, it could be judged as criminal to just protect your privacy and use secure channels that you don't want to be monitored in France, which is completely insane because we're supposed to be the country uh, of, of freedom. Like we basically invented like freedom for men and humanity. Like it's, it's our stuff. What the hell? Like what the hell is happening? And of course, we don't know if these people did anything wrong yet. Maybe the prosecution has a giant dossier of stuff that incriminates them in a lot of other ways. But for now, the only thing that we know that constitutes a case against these people is that they used encryption and secure communication channels and de-googled stuff and Linux, which basically means that the, the French police could go come and arrest me for the exact same things because I don't use Google apart from YouTube. I used slash E for the longest time. I use Linux on all my computers. I try to use like encrypted communication and I encrypt my hard drive. Am I a terrorist? What the hell? It's incredible and super baffling. This kind of behavior should be encouraged, not repressed. It's a good thing to try and protect your information and your anonymity on the internet. It's super troubling. By these standards, we're all terrorists. What the hell? I just wanted to point this thing out because it, it, it made me crazy reading about this thing. And, and I wonder why I didn't read about this earlier. So the link in the show notes is in French. Uh, you might be able to use Google Translate to get the gist of it. Uh, it's a French problem. So the only articles I could find about it uh, are in French. Now, let's talk about Windows 11. And apparently, Windows 11 is not very popular. Uh, the latest data shows that it's actually losing users and market share. It dropped from 22.95% of Windows users, which was already pretty low for an OS release two years ago, to 21.11. So that's almost a full 2% less. And people seem to move back to Windows 10, which still holds 72% of the Windows market share, almost two years after Windows 11 releases. And Windows 7 and 11 just don't count. They're like 4.7% and XP is like half of a percent. So it's, it's basically nothing. But yeah, Windows 10 is still king of Windows. And when the latest and greatest version of your OS, well, I'm putting latest and greatest in, in air quotes here, but you can't see it. When this version isn't even used by half of your user base two years after its release, I think you can start worrying a little bit. And it might just be a temporary drop, but honestly, the trend is not good. Like, 
I don't know of many operating systems, whether it's on... I mean, the only thing I can compare it is Android. Like, yes, sure, on Android, like, the latest version is not used by the majority of people for, like, four years. Uh, because, well, basically, you only get it when you buy a new phone. Like, you, the, most manufacturers don't give you a lot of major updates uh, to your Android phone. But that's not a good situation. And that's linked to Android fragmentation, where the carriers and the manufacturers decide to provide the update or not. For Windows, if you're a Windows user, you don't really have another path. Like, unless you stop using Windows, but in that case, you drop from these statistics, because that's Windows market share we're talking about here. Or you go to macOS, but again, you drop from these stats. If you keep using Windows, your only path is to move to the next one. So this means that people on Windows 10 are choosing not to use Windows 11. It's a voluntary choice. And it's even more worrying because, well, worrying for Microsoft, I think it's pretty encouraging for Linux, uh, but Microsoft announced that Windows 10 will not be getting any new features anymore. So it will reach end of life in, I don't know, maybe two years. You would expect people to move to the latest version as soon as possible. But yeah, Windows 11 has encountered so many problems that it's not super surprising that people do not want to use it. It's basically pure spyware. Uh, I demonstrated that in my dedicated video on data collection, which I left a link to in the show notes as well. Since Microsoft does not even respect user preferences for web browsers, their updates are wacky and seem to cause problems very regularly. You kind of need a Microsoft account now to to even log in into Windows 11 when you install it, and your start menu is actually worse than what it was in Windows 10. I'm not super surprised that people are not motivated to move to Windows 11. There's also the very strict hardware requirements, which means that maybe a lot of people don't have hardware that can run Windows 10. And there's also, of course, a lot of company uses. Uh, Like, companies generally do not move to the latest version of an operating system unless they absolutely have to. And so, of course, I'm thinking a lot of those Windows 10 users are probably companies. Um, Same for Windows 7 and 8. They're probably still companies and and not regular users. But yeah, it's it's not just that. Like, it's not like Windows 11 is stagnating or or not progressing a lot. It's actually losing users, which means that people who tried it went back to something else. They went back to Windows 10. That's not a good sign for Microsoft. But why I'm mentioning this here, because you might be wondering... Why is he talking about Windows in a Linux podcast? Well, it's because the more people get frustrated with Windows, the more chances we have to actually convert them to using Linux. And so the more Microsoft screws up with Windows 11, which seems to be what they are doing right now a lot, the more chances we have to actually gain users for Linux, which is always a net positive. Now, System76 announced some interesting changes to their open source firmware that they actually use on all their Linux devices. When you buy something from System76, you get like a core boot and some open source firmware on top of it. So first, they re-disabled the Intel Management Engine, which, if you don't know what that is, it's basically a, a small microcontroller that runs its own micro-operating system, and it handles some security features to to check the authenticity of the hardware and generally make sure that your your CPU isn't being tampered with. It's basically useless for normal consumers. It's more interesting for companies. And so the open source firmware from System76 disables it because, well, the micro OS that the Intel management engine runs is not open source. So they chose to disable it. 
Uh, they had to re-enable it previously uh, because there was a bug in core boot. So they had no choice but to like enable that thing. But now that they can re-disable it, they preferred like having less uh, proprietary code running on your CPU. They also added a new firmware setup menu that will let you enable or disable secure boot, which you might need if you want to install Windows 11 and dual boot that on your computer, for example, or you might want for security reasons, or you might want to disable if you use an NVIDIA GPU, for example. Now, for now, this boot menu is only for 12th gen Intel CPUs, but they're working on adding it to previous and newer gens. And they're also working on PopOS to enable the use of custom secure boot keys, which, if you don't know, are used to sign an operating system that can then boot when secure boot is enabled. Uh, and it will also enable support for the TPM2 chips, which are a requirement for Windows 11, so they are going to start popping up everywhere on most laptops. If they are here, might as well take advantage of them, and so PopOS uh, will have support for that soon. Now, their new firmware also allows 13th gen Intel CPUs to draw as much as 55 watts of power, when previously they were limited to 28 watts, which means that these, pre well, these CPUs can be pretty powerful. If you got an i7 or even an i5, uh, these CPUs should run drastically better on System76 devices and will give you way better performance. But they say that it shouldn't affect battery life too much, I'm thinking what they mean by that is that in normal use, your CPU will never reach 55 watt of power, so it won't reduce your battery life. But of course, if you start gaming or video editing or 3D rendering or any task that taxes your CPU or virtualizing virtual machines, any task that taxes your CPU, of course, then if it goes into the 55 watt mode, then yes, your battery will be affected. That's, that's normal. Now, their firmware also now supports NVIDIA Dynamic Boost, which is a technology from NVIDIA that facilitates sharing power between the CPU and the NVIDIA GPU. So basically, if your GPU is being taxed a lot, then you can actually take power from the CPU if it's not needed to use it on the GPU. And vice versa, if your GPU is underused, but your CPU needs a, more, a lot more power to actually function better, then the NVIDIA GPU will underclock and, and just use less power. So there's more power available for the CPU. So now that's supported in their firmware, and it can apparently provide up to 25 watts of additional power to the system that needs it the most. So this will, of course, definitely improve performance for gaming, whether the game is CPU-bound or GPU-bound, like your computer will be able to adapt in these scenarios, which is very cool. And on top of that, they brought fixes for soldered DDR5 RAM. I didn't know that their laptops had soldered RAM, but apparently the ones that have soldered RAM still have a, a dim slot, a so dim slot. So you can still upgrade the RAM after the fact, but they do have laptops that have 8 gigs of soldered DDR5 RAM. They just let you increase the amount on top of these 8 gigs, which I think is an interesting way of doing things because soldered RAM can technically, depending on how it's introduced and how well it's linked to the, to the CPU package, it can technically be faster. But you also don't want just soldered RAM because, well, then your laptop goes to the trash when that's not enough anymore to run anything because no one has the technical skills to solder more RAM. Uh, that's just not doable easily by most humans. Uh, so I didn't know that they had that, but apparently they do. And I think it's a, it's a cool way of implementing it. Like if you have to have soldered RAM and if it gives you a benefit, might as well have another slot for RAM that you can actually upgrade. Pretty nice. 
So now there are fixes for handling this soldered RAM on probably there were problems with the soldered RAM and the non-soldered RAM being used at the same time because there might not be the same speeds or whatever. They also added support for platform controller hub chips and support for discrete Thunderbolt controllers that aren't baked into the system on a chip. Apparently some 13th gen Intel CPUs have external Thunderbolt controllers that aren't directly baked into the CPU and so they added support for these in their open firmware. So it's pretty great stuff. Uh, with just a firmware update, you get more support for various features, you get more features, and you get more performance out of your devices for free and all open source. And apparently a lot of these changes that could be upstreamed were upstreamed to Core Boot, which is also a very nice thing to see. So I just wanted to report on that. If you have a System76 laptop, uh, do proceed to your firmware updates because they might improve your experience a little bit. And now let's move on to distro releases because there are a few this week. So first is Debian 12. Uh, it was either released today or will be in a few hours. I'm not going to lie, I'm recording this on Friday for publication on Saturday when you're probably listening to this. So only future me and you know if they actually release Debian 12 on time but I guess they always do because they have so much time to plan for it. So yeah, let's assume that Debian 12 is actually released on time on uh, June 10th. So Debian 12 is the latest stable release of that venerable distro. And of course, I already made a dedicated video about it on my YouTube channel to show how in the current Linux landscape using Debian stable isn't necessarily a problem. It actually makes perfect sense as a desktop and the outdated parts are not outdated anymore thanks to Flatpak, Snaps and the like. So the highlights for Debian 12 include uh, first an update from GNOME 3.38 to GNOME 43. It's not the latest, it's not GNOME 44, but 43 is still pretty decent. I still use it on my main desktop with Fedora 38, uh, 37. Uh, there's also an upgrade from KD 5.20 in Debian 11 to 5.27 in Debian 12, so you're using the very latest and greatest KDE Plasma version. And basically, most of their packages have been updated in the repo. 67% of them got bumped to a newer version, and they added 11,000 new packages. So the repos now have more than 60,000 packages, which is kind of insane. Uh, they use the LTS kernel version 6.1, and they also ship the latest versions of Cinnamon, Mate, LXD, LXQt, or XFCE, if you prefer using that. Now, one of the biggest changes is that they added support for non-free firmware by default in the installed media. Uh, previously, Debian never included non-free software in their installed media. It was the FOSS distro. But that also led to various problems with uh, mainly Wi-Fi and Bluetooth cards that just did not work at all when you tried to install your system, which was pretty annoying because it meant you had to use an Ethernet cable to complete the installation depending on if you use the net install or the live CD. And now they will load these non-free firmware bits automatically for you if they detect you need them. They're still not officially part of Debian. There's a, they're in an extra repo. They actually split the repos into non-free software and non-free firmware, uh, but they will automatically install that for you if you need it, if they detect that your computer needs it. And of course, if you prefer your system completely fast at the price of functionality, you can also disable that and still install a completely fast version of Debian 12. Now, I think it's a pretty cool distro. Uh, I spent about a week with it. And 
it's definitely still a bit too old for my personal needs. Uh, I like using the latest desktop environments and honestly it's even bothering me on my desktop to not have GNOME 44. Not because 43 is that worse, because 44 is basically 43 with like two or three improvements, but I kind of like using the latest thing because that's what I talk about on my channel. But if you don't care about that and all you want is stability and rock solidness and being on a system that is tested and tested and tested again, then Debian Stable is the best choice for you. If you don't want to bother with regular breakages or even occasional breakages, Debian is fantastic. And today, with Flatpak supports or even snaps or app images, the fact that some applications will get a bit long in the tooth over the two years of Debian 12's life won't really be that much of a problem. Because, well, if you absolutely need the latest version of Firefox, LibreOffice, or GIMP, or whatever, you can download them using a Flatpak. When Debian 11 released, that wasn't as much the case. It worked, but it worked, like, way less well, if I can say it this way. So, yeah, I think it's not a problem anymore to have an older base, because you can basically supplement it with newer apps, and you get the best of both worlds. Now, of course, if you need the latest versions of libraries and the latest drivers, then yeah, Debian is probably not awesome for you. You can game on it if you want, for example, but you're not getting the latest NVIDIA drivers, you're not getting the latest Mesa drivers, and if you want to, or even the latest kernel. And if you want to add that, then you add third-party repos, which means that the Debian stability basically goes out the window because you're not using Debian. You're using Debian plus other components that haven't been tested. So, if you want to learn more about Debian 12, check out my dedicated video on this uh, on this distro. It's linked in the show notes as well. Now, if you're more of an OpenSUSE kind of person, then you're also in luck, because OpenSUSE Leap 15.5 was just released. And it's also very, very well tested and super stable. Although it's a little bit less up-to-date than Debian 12 in terms of desktop. If you use KDE, no problem, you get KDE 5.27, the latest version. But for GNOME, apparently you're still stuck on GNOME 41, which is pretty dated and old, and I don't really know why they wouldn't update that, so I can only hope it was a mistake in the release notes and the various articles I found about it, because why would you release something with GNOME 41 in 2023? Kinda makes no sense. Now, you're also on an older kernel compared to Debian 12, it's version 5.14, and it has the same drivers uh, as Debian 12, Mesa 22.3 and the same NVIDIA drivers as well. But more interestingly, they also developed a tool for OpenSUSE users that might want to switch to the commercial version of OpenSUSE, which is SUSE Linux Enterprise. And so there's now a new tool that will let you automatically migrate your distro from OpenSUSE Leap to uh, OpenSUSE, no, to SUSE Enterprise Linux, uh, the equivalent version, uh, which is pretty cool. And of course, you also get a bunch of newer packages, the latest version of Firefox. It's also the extended support release, just like in Debian. So the super stable Firefox version, you get the latest Thunderbird and you get a lot of other packages that have been updated as well. Plus Yast, their trusted config utility, which let's be honest, is one of the main selling points of OpenSUSE, apart from its reliability and its automatic testing that generally makes it pretty solid. Now, with this new update, it means that uh, OpenSUSE Leap 15.4 will become end-of-life in six months. So, I guess you kind of want to upgrade relatively soon, but 
If you're using Leap, you probably want to follow where SUSE Enterprise Linux is going, so you're probably already updating to each new version. So I personally never tried OpenSUSE Leap. I did try Tumbleweed, which is still on my list of contenders for when I move back to KDE Plasma and when I move to a rolling release because it was extremely stable and nice to use. Uh, I also have a video on this distro. The link is in the show notes as well. Uh, but Leap I never tried. It always kind of felt like, yeah, it's the Debian of, of RPMs or something because Red Hat Enterprise Linux always felt a little bit more up to date than Debian. Uh, but OpenSUSE kind of felt on the same level. So yeah, I consider it the Debian of RPM. I don't know if that's a, a good way of looking at it or not. And yet another distro, but this time it's a beta. So I talked about Vanilla OS recently, which is an immutable distro that uses the power of containers to give you access to virtually 100% of the available software for Linux. You can basically create a container for Arch Linux to install anything from the AUR, and those packages implement themselves in your apps grid in GNOME as well. So you can launch them transparently, not knowing where they're installed. It doesn't matter. It's like it's a program running on your system. Who cares where it's installed or on which distro? It's pretty cool. Uh, but in the same space as Vanilla OS, we also have Blend OS, which announced the beta of Blend OS 3. And it does go a lot further than most distros into the immutable distro world. First, it will now not apply updates through packages anymore. All updates will now rely on the installation ISOs, which means that basically when a new ISO is released and would be available for anyone to download and perform a fresh install, your already installed BlendOS system will detect that and use that ISO to perform the update instead of downloading packages, applying them to your system, hoping that the dependencies work, or using a second partition and applying updates to that second partition. So when you reboot, you're rebooting to that new partition. Now it's going to apply updates using the new ISO, which means that everybody is always using the exact same set of packages. And that's actually pretty cool. Uh, but it does sound like it would use a lot of data. Like you're going to download a full ISO every time you need to update. But apparently that's not the case. Uh, they use Zsync to only download what has changed from your current system uh, compared to the new installation ISO. So it should be fine and not consume more data than just a regular normal installation method. Now on top of that, BlendOS 3 will let you overlay packages on top of the immutable base. That's something that a lot of immutable distros do. Basically the system is read only but you can kind of coerce it into installing other packages that you might need. It's just not recommended. And this builds a layer of packages that is then applied every time you update, you reinstall on each new update these packages and you have to reboot uh, on the new system once you install the packages for them to be actually present on your system. Well, BlendOS will do that as well, but now they will install these packages to a specific layer uh, that basically exists on top of the immutable system that is kept between updates, but that can also be completely removed in one single command line. You can drop all the packages you added on top of the base, which can be pretty cool for tests. Like you can test a bunch of things on your distro. And when you're done with that and you want to return to like the normal state, you can just remove everything you installed, not remembering what you installed. You don't need that. You just use their new tool called Akshaha and it can handle drivers. It can handle all packages and it will drop the whole layer or add more packages to that layer if you want. 
and BlendOS, of course, can install packages from a lot of distros, just like vanilla OS. It includes Arch, Alma Linux, Crystal Linux, Debian, Fedora, Kali Linux, Ubuntu, and more. And they even wrote a new tool for BlendOS specifically, which is called Assemble, and it lets you build packages and images of BlendOS if you want to build a remix of that distribution. Uh, so you don't need to handle a repo yourself if you want to add various packages or various things on top of the normal system. You don't need to do that anymore. Uh, you don't have to host your own repo. You can just use their tool to build a remix. Of course, that's probably overly ambitious seeing that BlendOS is really, really new to the scene. Uh, if I remember correctly, it's built by the same guy who's doing the, uh, the Ubuntu Unity uh, remix, which is interesting because he's super young. I think it's the same person. And he's super, super young. Uh, so he's kind of a virtuoso of, uh, of programs and distros. I kind of like his approach to things. So BlendOS looks super interesting. Of course, for now, BlendOS 3 is just a beta. So I will wait for an official release before I take a look at it. But you can expect a video dedicated to it uh, when it's actually out. And now in terms of desktop environments, uh, ahead of the release of Mint 21.2, Cinnamon 5.8 was also released and already landed in uh, Arch repos. So this is the desktop environment that Mint uses and it now has support for the XDG desktop portals specification, which means that if you use flat packs with Cinnamon, they will be supported a lot better and they will be a lot safer to use and also libidvita apps that sort of take advantage of portals will also work correctly now, which is really good. But the biggest changes to Cinnamon 5.8 are to the appearance and the appearance settings. There's a new global dark mode. They finally adopted the same standard that GNOME and KDE already use, which is basically a, a dark mode standard. You just select, do you want prefer dark, prefer light, or let the apps decide. And then depending on what the app actually supports, it will adopt your dark mode or light mode. If, if you select prefer dark mode, but the app would look broken with dark mode or doesn't support it, then it won't move to it. And that's the correct way of doing things while developers update their apps to support this specification. And generally they do, like most applications do have good support for dark mode when you turn it on. Now you also get styles, which are basically like the complete KDE appearance packages that you can change in one click. You select a specific style, and it will change the window borders, the app themes, and the accent colors, so you don't have to select each element individually. If you used Mint previously, you know that their appearance settings are kind of messy, like you select a theme for the window manager and you've got a giant list that pops up. Then you select a theme for your applications and you've got a giant list that pops up with every variant for each theme, for every color, for every dark mode, so you basically get three times as much as what you actually wanted. Like if, if you've got 10 accent colors, then this theme takes 30 slots in your theme list. There's 10 slots for the light theme, well, 20 slots. There are 10 slots for the light themes and the various accent colors and 10 slots for the dark theme and the accent colors. It's a mess. So with the styles, you can rationalize that. But of course, if you prefer selecting things individually, you still can. There are advanced settings that you can enter to still be able to mix and match if you prefer that. And so each style has a dark mode and a light mode and a mixed mode where you get some dark elements and some, uh, some light elements. And the accent color that you select in this new window will also be applied to the tooltips and to the notifications, 
which now use symbolic icons, so they will stay legible and understandable, even though they can be bright blue, bright pink, or bright orange. On top of that, Cinnamon 5.8 also adds support for touchpad and touchscreen gestures, so you can manage your windows correctly. I already talked about that last week uh, when we talked about the new things in, in Mint uh, 21.2. Uh, but basically, yeah, it lets you manage your windows, you can tile them, control media playback. We still don't know if they're one-to-one -one or if they're implemented in a more keyboard shortcut fashion. Uh, I guess we'll find out when I try Mint 21.2. And finally, they also have performance improvements for the file manager. Uh, most of the applets have also received improvements. You can finally enable middle click, middle mouse click to paste, which I wasn't aware that it wasn't a thing in Cinnamon, but apparently it's not. And laptops with hybrid graphics can finally elect to run a specific app using the dedicated GPU, something you can already do in KDE and GNOME, so it's nice that Cinnamon gets it as well. So Cinnamon uh, looks like a solid update, version 5.8, it looks pretty cool. And I will of course be testing it thoroughly when Mint 21.2 is out. Honestly, the only thing I thought was really missing from Cinnamon was touchpad gestures. And now that they added them, if they're correctly implemented and they're one-to-one, -one, then I think Cinnamon is definitely another contender to replace a Gnome on my desktop when I want to change things up. Okay, now let's finish this podcast with the gaming news. So first we have an update to Proton Experimental, which is apparently the default, I think it's the default uh, in Steam, uh, the, it's the default Proton version that Steam uses for all non-officially supported Steam Play titles. And so this new release now finally supports the latest masterpiece to be released this month, which is, of course, not Diablo 4, it's Gollum, the Lords of the Rings Gollum, is now supported with Proton Experimental. I don't know why they bothered with that, because this game looks absolutely abysmal and has been reviewed so badly, but it now supports it, so I guess yay for compatibility. Now, of course, that's not it. It also fixes a, tons of, a ton of issues for Call of Duty 2, for Secret of Mana, for Ubisoft Connect, and also for Halo the Master Chief Collection. There were issues with the menus, and those are now fixed. Now, on top of Proton Experimental, we also have a new release of GE Proton, version 8.4. If you don't know what GE Proton is, it's a remix of the regular Proton, uh, but made by uh, Golden Eggroll, which is also the main developer of the Nobara distro. And it basically works exactly like Proton, but it has extra improvements, extra fixes for better compatibility, newer versions of everything, at the price of potential stability on games that already ran well, but then these games you can already like change to the version of Proton that worked well with them. So basically it doesn't cost you anything to use it. This new release brings the latest bleeding edge version of Wine and the latest Git versions of DXVK and VKD3D. So you can expect better compatibility with DirectX 9, 10, 11, and 12 games, which is also cool. And it also fixes issues with a bunch of specific titles. So you can grab it from their website or you can use a graphical user interface app like uh, ProtonUp Qt to install it uh, quicker because if not, you have to copy paste it in the right directory. It can be annoying. Just use the GUI, it's way more efficient. And finally, these are not necessarily Linux related gaming news, but they're Proton related and Wine related. Uh, they're interesting. Apple announced at their latest keynote that they actually want developers to make games for their Macs. And like gaming on Mac has always been pretty iffy. Uh, 
when they were using Intel CPUs, like basically no one made versions of their software for Macs because their Macs had terrible GPUs. Like they could not play anything correctly anyways because like no one had a Mac with a decent GPU or decent thermals anyways. So it was nonsense. Why would you port a game to a platform that basically will never be able to play it correctly? There was also the issue of Metal, uh, which is like their own API, which is the only API you can use uh, on Mac. OpenGL is deprecated and probably not even supported at all, and they don't support Vulkan for some reason. But now that they moved to M1, to Apple Silicon, M1 and M2, it's even worse, because the games that were ported to Mac don't run at all on these devices. Uh, most of them are not even translated and just uh, by Rosetta and just completely crash when you launch them. So basically, the Mac as a gaming platform was dead. But Apple wants to revive it because they have announced a game porting toolkit for developers to bring their games to the Mac. And so they, they didn't go into too many details on how it worked, but they did show uh, the medium, for example, running on that game porting toolkit. And it's not meant for users to run their games. It's meant for developers to assess if the game could run well on a Mac by using compatibility layers. And now you probably see where I'm going with this. Their compatibility layer is based on Wine and the XVK and VKD3D, but they add something on top of it, which is Molten VK, which translates Vulkan instructions into Metal. Now, apparently this is far from ready, but people have already found a way to try and run any game that they wanted from Steam using this thing. Well, any game, any game that will actually run uh, because it doesn't seem super stable. It needs per game bug fixes in Molten VK to run correctly because while DXVK and VKD3D are used a lot and very well tested, Molten VK is way younger, the thing that translates Vulcan into metal, is way younger and like is not complete yet. But it's still very interesting. And so people have jumped on the occasion. It's it's not a super easy process, but it's just a few command lines to install the game porting toolkit and enabling a few things. It doesn't look super tricky. And then you can basically just run the game from Steam. The performance doesn't look amazing yet. Like people trying to run Cyberpunk on an M1, uh, a regular M1 Mac, get less than 30 FPS at low detail. So it's not like it's amazing or anything, but it runs. And so basically the goal of Apple is very likely to be enabling games, enabling basically their own Proton support layer, which will not be Proton, it will be something else. And it will be at the system level instead of being baked into a game store because, well, they probably will want to sell those games through the Mac App Store and not through Steam if they can. Now, of course, the performance will very likely be worse on equivalent hardware than on Linux, because there's one more translate... Well, there are two more translations happening. Uh, first, you take the Wine binary and libraries, which are x86. So these have to be translated through Rosetta into M1 binaries. Then second, you have the calls made to DirectX or DirectX 12, which also have to be translated into Vulkan. But then you have to translate these Vulkan calls into Metal for Apple hardware to be actually able to understand them. Which means that you have a bunch of translation layers stacked on top of them, but it still manages to work. It's a lot more points of failure because you have the emulator for x86 that might fail, and you have the uh, translation from Vulkan to Metal. So there's two additional points of bugs and failures, 
which will probably make debugging these things a freaking nightmare. But it's still super interesting that this technology, which is basically based on a 30-year-old hack of a bunch of crazy people who decided that running Windows software on Linux would be cool, and now their work is ending up in a conference from Apple trying to run games on their platform that has basically like refused to have games for all this time. I think it's pretty funny and it was definitely worth a mention in these gaming news. So this will conclude our podcast for the day. So I hope you enjoyed listening to it. As always, if you have questions or remarks, you can leave them on the podcast website at thepodcast.thelinuxexp.com. And if you want to support the podcast, there are plenty of links in the show notes as well. If you want to read more on the various topics, there are links to the articles or the videos I mentioned in the show notes as well. So thank you all for listening, and I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye!